Let me tell you today about Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, or you can record it on another device or platform and transfer it to Anchor. It will distribute your podcast for you through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast right in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We welcome in a man that I would like to call an author. Of what book, you ask? That may be the Bob Carpenter baseball scorebook. Many know this cool cat for calling games of the Washington Nationals, but he's been a major league baseball play-by-play announcer for more than 30 years, calling games for the Rangers, Mets, Twins, Cardinals, and ESPN. This man was inducted to the Oklahoma Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame and has accumulated multiple awards and honors, but gives us the honor of hearing C- you later we welcome in bob carpenter how's it going bob thanks david probably uh probably the best podcast or live inter- uh introduction i've had lately so thanks for that eric uh good to be with you and uh it, it's funny we were uh we were promoing my scorebook one time i was with the cardinals and uh i was going to do a scorebook signing at the team store like that weekend and we were promoting it on one of the games and uh, Joe Buck was on radio, and I heard that Joe said, uh, you got to read this book. You'll really love the ending. So uh, along with your comments, uh, uh, the, you know, that kind of reminded me of what Joe said probably 20-some years ago. Well, I want to actually dive right in with that scorebook, actually, because it's very famous, and you talk about it on the broadcast a lot. Can you tell us a little, as he shows us, I love it. Can you talk to us a little bit about your scorebook and how you got started with the idea and, and all that? Well, in 1984, which was my first big league season, I, uh, you know, uh, it was a new cable network and things kind of gotten thrown together uh, by the Cardinals and Anheuser-Busch at the last minute. And a lot of us were scrambling to get ready for the season. I had never done a major league ball game before. And so uh, the Cardinals were in Los Angeles for opening day. Back in 84, they were going to start the season the first week or two playing in all the warm weather cities and all the domes. Because back then we had Olympic Stadium in Montreal. We had the Kingdom in Seattle. We had the Astrodome in Houston. You know, all ballparks that aren't seeing any baseball anymore. And in fact, uh, the Kingdom's not even standing anymore. But <clears throat> that's how the Cardinals ended up opening up in L.A., which is kind of unusual because the Cardinals were in the National League East, Dodgers National League West. There was no Central at that time. That didn't come in until about uh, 13 years later when realignment took place and and the Brewers switched from the American League to the National League. So uh, I'm doing my first couple of months of Major League Baseball using a softball scorebook that I found at Bucks Sporting Goods right down the street here in Tulsa from where I still live. And, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't it wasn't doing the job for me. Uh, it's kind of weird looking at my first major league game because I still have the scorebook, and uh, it, it's in a uh, it's in a softball scorebook, and you know I've got Ozzie Smith, I got Willie McGee, I've got all these guys with the Dodgers, Fernando Valenzuela, I think started that game, 
And uh, so I just got to thinking, you know, uh, I, I haven't really seen a good scorebook out there that fits my needs as a broadcaster. So I went to Whitey Herzog, our manager, and asked him if I could grab a couple of uh, blank lineup cards that they use in the clubhouse and in the dugout. And uh, he graciously gave me a couple of those. I took them back to my hotel room on the road. I don't know. I can't remember where we were. But um, got out a ruler, got out a pen and a pencil, kind of designed my own grid. And and if you guys are familiar with the book at all, um, you know, as he just happens to pull out a 15-3 to Nationals victory over the <laughs> Orioles. Um, if you look at the book, you know, I've got standings over here. Uh, here's the team's lineup, the other team's defense. This is the Nationals bench. These are the Orioles pitchers, Orioles bullpen over here. And then there's your grid, you know, and room for up to 15 innings. Well, some nights we use some of those extra innings, and a lot of nights we don't. But this original design came from that lineup card that you could see in the Cardinal dugout because it had our guys, it had our extra guys, it had our bullpen guys who appear on the other side, of course, you know, where the Orioles are hitting. And so um, this the, the lineup card is where I got the design, at least the concept for the design of this scorebook, so that when I have this half page open and it's the late innings, I know who we have available off the bench, I know who the other team has in their bullpen. You know, bang, bang plays. There's the guys in the outfield. On the other page, the umpires are up there positioned as they are on the field for those bang, bang plays when you really need to have some quick identification. So this whole book sprang out of that back in 1984. And uh, I used it for a while. Guys would come up to me. I, I just took, I took the pages down to a local print shop and had them print up about a 75-page scorebook, because we were only doing like 50, 55 games at that time, because teams were not televising their home games that much back in the mid-80s. That would come later with cable and all the revenue. So I didn't need a 100-page or a 160-page scorebook. So guys would come up and say, hey, where'd you get that book? And I said, well, I designed it myself. And they said, well, how could I get one? So I'd rip out a page and say, here, take it down to your local Jiffy print or whatever. And then, um, you know, uh, in the mid-90s, I decided, hey, maybe we can sell a few of these. Uh, I designed a brochure. We mailed it out to every uh, announcer that I knew. Uh, my wife and my daughter and I sat there a couple of nights addressing them to every minor league baseball team in the United States. And I got a pretty decent response. So in 1995, it really kind of got off the ground as a mail-order business. And then um, a friend of mine designed a website in 1997, been online selling the scorebooks ever since. And we usually sell about 1700 to 2000 a year. Wow. So wow, you're quite the entrepreneur. You know, it's funny, uh, Eric, that it turned out that way. It really didn't start that way because it was born out of necessity. What do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. So I invented the scorebook, basically. And there were some other books out there, but it was like the baseball writer's book that's got the little bitty diamonds and stuff on it. You know, if, if you look at my book, it's kind of clean because the squares, the grid, you know, it's empty. You can fill it in. You can keep score any way you want to. There's no set, you know, way to do that. I do have a... Uh, in, in inside the front cover, I do have a key, you know, to how to score baseball games. 
So that's, you know, pretty informative and that's in there. So, um, you know, uh, it started as a necessity for my job, turned out to be something that would ha have me meeting fans from all over the world, literally. I've sent score books. I, I sent one to Israel uh, a couple of weeks ago. I've sent dozens, maybe a couple hundred to Canada, England, Europe, South America, Central America, Puerto Rico, um, Honolulu, Alaska. Uh, the scorebook's been all over the world. It, it has visited far more places than I have. Bob, I, I think it's awesome with the scorebook. And I'm curious, do you, you do it during the, the game, correct, <clears throat> when you're calling them? Oh, yeah, you have, yeah, you got to keep score when you're calling a game. And it's, it's kind of funny, uh, David, because over time, I, I find myself calling the play, and if it's a routine fly ball to right field, I've got nine written down before the guy even makes the catch. <laughs> uh, you know, some plays you can do that, routine play, 6-3, 1-3, ground ball to the second baseman, 4-3, you know, stuff like that. But, yeah, there's no way to really call baseball unless you're keeping a, a pretty good, intricate uh, log on the ball game and what's going on. Now, does FP, your partner, does he do the scorebook as well, or does he kind of look at yours while you guys are doing the broadcast? No, he, he's got his own. I think every, I think everybody, at least at the major league level that I've seen, they have their own way of keeping score. FP's got some cards that I think he got from uh, Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Kruko when he was in San Francisco. Uh, so he has his own printed up. He puts a curly W on there for the Nats. And, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I've gone to any big league booth and not seeing the play-by-play -play person or the analyst both keeping score. That's interesting. I so, am curious. So Bob, Go ahead. That's, 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 <clears throat> I was going to say, the scorebook is kind of your trademark, but you also have some trademark sayings. The see you later and so long for just a while. Are having trademarks important for being distinguishable in this industry? You know, I, I don't. I don't think, unless you really come up with something clever that's never been done before, I think it's kind of hard to come up with a call, what do they call it, a, a, a catchphrase or something like that. Um, I don't, see you later was kind of organic for me. Uh, people asked me where it started, and it was really back in the 80s because I was with the Texas Rangers, 86 to 89, Bobby Valentine was the manager. We had a bunch of sluggers on that team. Uh, not a very good ball club, but guys could really hit. And uh, we had Pete Incavilla, who came out of Oklahoma State, didn't play one day in the minor leagues. Uh, he was a home run guy. Um, Larry Parrish, big, strong third baseman, hit a lot of homers. Pete O'Brien, a sweet swinging first baseman with a left-handed swing, uh, hit a lot of homers. Toby Hera, who came over from the Washington Senators to the Texas Rangers with the team when it left D.C. How ironic that I would call their games and end up in D.C. eventually. Uh, Odeby McDowell, who was in the outfield, he hit a kid out of Arizona State who played in the same outfield with Barry Bonds, by the way, and uh, he hit a lot of home runs. It was a home run hitting team, and they were hitting a lot of home runs, and I, I just kind of came up with this see you later thing, and that's kind of the way I called it for those four years and then into the 90s. And then when I went back to the Cardinals in 95, um, Pretty much the same. Didn't didn't use that call on every home run. And then when Mark McGuire showed up at the trading deadline in 1997, I was finding that my home run call was way too short 
for the way he was hitting home runs because they were they were in the air forever, balloon balls, you know, moonshots, whatever you want to call them, and um, so that's when I took the see you later and kind of made it see you later, you know, kind kind of trying to time when the ball was actually going to come down off of Mark's bat. And so that goes back, what, 22, 23 years. Uh, I I just got finished doing my 37th year of of baseball at the major league level with the uh, Nationals this year. But um, so the the, the see you later, as you called it, that goes back to the late 90s. Uh, So long for just a while is something Jack Buck used to say pretty much at the end of the scoreboard after the game every night. It was like, hey, it's goodbye, but not for long. You know, we're we're back with you tomorrow. And um, I used to say that kind of at the end of every telecast. And then FP said, well, you know what? If we win, we should be really happy. So maybe you should say see you later at the end of the telecast when we win. And so long for just a while at the end of the telecast when we don't win. So I figured, okay, you know, sounds fun. So I think for the last seven or eight years, maybe I've been doing it that way. You know, I never keep track of exactly when these things happen, but uh, that that's pretty much the metamorphosis of the, uh, or metamorphosis, if you will, of the home run call. And, uh, and again, that's something that Jack Buck said at the end of her game. And, and I think it's important for me, guy, uh, for me to tell you guys, because, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me about broadcasting style and all that. I think just based on your personality it's something that happens over the years. But Jack Buck, you know, I think in most people's minds, except those from St. Louis, like me, uh, who grew up Cardinal fans, I think most people consider Vin Scully the greatest of all time. Tiger fans might tell you it was Ernie Harwell. Uh, Cardinal fans, Jack Buck. Philly fans, Harry Callis. Pirates fans, Bob Prince. You know, all uh, Lindsay, you know Lindsey Nelson with the Mets. Uh, you know, Mel Allen with the Yankees, all, all the great voices, the game Red Barber with the Dodgers. But so maybe Jack and some of those guys are considered just a little half step below Vin Scully. I mean, who I can't think of anybody else who lasted 67 years in the booth. That's how old I am. I mean, I'm 67 and I feel old. Vinny did the games for 67 years. Uh, that boggles my mind. But you know what? Every night, Jack Buck... He had, he, he had a dry sense of humor. He wasn't overly talkative like his partner Harry Carey was. Harry, well, you know Harry. He was just all over the place. <clears throat> Great in his own right, but that was his style, not to be really copied by anybody else. And if anybody else tries to copy that style, good luck. But um, Jack signed off every night by saying so long for just a while, but he left you wanting more. Every night when he signed off, you were sad that the broadcast was over. And I'm not sure you can say that about a a huge number of guys who've done this over the years. Jack always left you wanting more. And I think that's a great trait in an announcer, especially in these days of information overload and social media and all this stuff. Everybody's trying to be out of the box and a little bit crazy. But I, I prefer to, to take that road less traveled, maybe, and at least try to try to follow in Jack's footsteps and do some of that. And I think I think Joe Buck is pretty good at that too. I think Joe 
has inherited a lot of that from his dad. And it's one of the reasons he's successful at the network level. He has his detractors. I worked 18 years at ESPN. I'm sure I had people who couldn't stand listening to me, and some in Washington and Virginia and Maryland as well. But, uh, you know, the ability to leave the audience not worn out and wanting more is rare indeed. So, Bob, you're talking about home run calls, famous broadcasters, which I'm putting you in there because I think you're as good as it gets. Thank you. And you're articulate and you're smooth like caramel. And I'm quite the opposite. But I'm curious, where did this get started? Where, what made you want to get into broadcasting in the first place? And when did you realize you had that golden voice made for broadcasting? Well, you know, I don't consider my voice golden. I think I, think I have maybe a mid to slightly lower range voice, but I'm not there with John Miller, you know, and some of those guys. I mean, I mean, you talk about a, you, you talk about the voice of God on a baseball broadcast. You know, those guys are blessed. You know, and, and you know, Vin, Vince Scully early in his career, you know, and I've heard his tapes, his voice was higher pitched. I, I, I think you kind of, uh, I think your voice lowers and gets a little deeper and a little richer as the years go by. And, um, you know, some guys are blessed with that and some aren't. So thank you for, for putting it that way. I've, I've never really felt that way about my voice. I mean, I've been listening to it since I was two years old, so it's nothing out of the ordinary to me. But, you know, when people say that, I'm like, wow, thank you. I, I appreciate that. But, you know, again, the, the whole voice thing, I think it comes, it lends itself to a sport like baseball. Now, I did a lot of college basketball. I did 40 years of Division I basketball. Uh, I hung up the uh, headset for hoops three years ago when I did my final uh, University of Oklahoma game back in 2017. You know, and there are moments during a basketball game or football. I did some minor league hockey when you have to rise to those, you know, crescendos. Because, you know, the game kind of goes up and down as it goes along. And, and what I try to tell young announcers is, if you come out of the gate when the first pitch is thrown, the ball is kicked off, the basketball tips, the puck gets dropped. If you come out of that moment like a machine gun, you're going to wear out the audience by the time the first period's over, the first quarter's over, or the second inning is over. So I think it's really important, and this is something I think you learn as you go along, how to pace yourself and how to have enough left in the late innings of a, of a ball game, uh, you know, uh, for for uh, for the Nats to score seven runs in the bottom of the ninth inning on a Kurt Suzuki three-run walk-off homer against the Mets on the way to, to the World Series like they did a year ago September. I mean, that was unbelievable for all of us. And if you don't have anything left by the ninth inning because you've worn everybody out and you've worn yourself out, uh, you know, that's a problem. Because I remember early in my career when I first started doing loud college basketball games in visiting arenas where you might be sitting in front of the other team's band or their student section, it was tough. I was hoarse somewhere in the second half, and I was totally worn out by the end of those games. And I think you kind of learn how to pace yourself, how to develop a style, and how to uh, keep your cool during the big moments but get excited and not totally lose your mind uh, like I still hear some guys do these days. Bob, you've called a variety of sports. 
and especially baseball for a while, you've probably seen some crazy things, but you've also called six no hitters. At what point do you start getting the feeling of, wow, this could actually happen? (laughs) I don't think you ever get a feeling that it's actually going to happen until maybe the ninth inning, because there are so many things that can go wrong. And it's funny because uh, my last year with the Texas Rangers, 1989, was Nolan Ryan's first year with the Rangers. He had a no-hitter going in Toronto one day at Old Exhibition Stadium. It was either one out or two outs in the eighth inning. And this little switch-hitting infielder named Nelson Liriano came up. And I think I said to my partner, Steve Busby, who was a really good major league pitcher in his time, I said, Buzz, these are the kind of hitters that are tough to get out when you're trying to do something special. Because you're really not supposed to mention the term no-hitter. You know, that's considered a jinx. So um, I I didn't want to say, you know, when you're throwing a no-hitter, this is the kind of guy you don't want to face. You have to find other ways to word that. And I'll be darned if that little guy didn't line a double into the right field corner. and uh, Or else I would have had a Nolan Ryan no-hitter. And then one year in St. Louis, Michael Waka of the Cardinals had the Nationals no hit with two outs in the ninth inning. And Ryan Zimmerman hit a little chopper back to the mound. Waka reached up for it. It hit off the tip of his glove, and Ryan Zimmerman beat it out. So of all the no hitters I've called, uh, two by Max Scherzer, one by uh, Jordan Zimmerman, one by Bud Smith of the Cardinals, one by Jose Jimenez of the Cardinals. Those were all by the teams that I was affiliated with. I never had to call an opposing no-hitter, but the first one I ever called, which has an asterisk next to it, was a five-inning perfect game by David Palmer of the Montreal Expos at St. Louis my first year in 1994. The game got rained out after five innings and they never could restart it. So that's the only time the opposing pitcher did it to my team. Uh, The other five were two Cardinals and three Nationals, so that's been pretty cool to be a part of all of that. Yeah, I remember the call you had when, uh, I believe it was Steve or um, Steven Souza when he caught that ball. Steven Souza Jr.'s catch on the Jordan Zimmerman no-hitter. The last play of the ball game, the last play of the season, and guys, I don't know if you realize this, I, every time I every time we do a, a flashback on the year and I look back at that game, I look at my scorebook and I just can't believe it because it was the last day of September, the last day of the season. The Nats were not in the race. And um, the only two guys that were on the field who started the game were Jordan Zimmerman and Wilson Ramos, the catcher. The other seven positions had all been substituted for and that was crazy to think that Steven Souza Jr., who was at, at that time a rookie, uh, would be in left field. I thought it was a double right off the bat. Kristen Yelich hit that ball, by the way. And uh, I thought it was an opposite field double. Steven dove. He made an unbelievable catch. And I think I hollered, he caught it. He caught it. <laughs> Something like that. It's a no-hitter for Jordan Zimmerman. You know, you don't forget those things. I mean, that's not what I think I said. That's what I know I said. I'd be kidding you if I said otherwise. But, you know, a couple of weeks before that, we were in Atlanta, and Steven Souza Jr. went up crashing against the right field wall at old uh, Turner Field trying to take away a home run. And he, I, I can't believe the guy didn't break his arm or break his shoulder into four pieces. He was that kind of guy, 
And little did we know, weeks later, uh, a catch like that would uh, would result in a no-hitter. So by far, you, you bring up a good thing because by far, that was the most spectacular play that ended any of those five true no-hitters that I called. Bob, it's interesting that you mentioned that they were out of it at that point because I'm actually very curious as a play-by-play announcer for the team. Do you find that it was harder to wake up in the morning? Do you find it was harder to get excited during games? When, in those first like three, first few years with the Nats, how they were pretty much bottom feeders in the National League, and you're kind of calling the games knowing, okay, like you know, we're most likely not competing now and finding that excitement and energy, and then they turn into a contender, and every day you're like, wow, they're, they're a uh, World Series favorite. Is there a different type of energy just in the day-by-day and when you're calling the games? Well, I think from my standpoint, first of all, I always have trouble getting out of bed. So <laughs> first part of your question there, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a late night guy. It's funny when I come home because my wife is early to bed and she's an early riser and our schedules do not mix. But, um, you know, uh, several years ago, I thought about this and I think about it every day. When I get out of my car at Nationals Park, and I'm walking into a major league ballpark and it's three o'clock or three thirty in the afternoon. And I haven't had a great day, but I'm doing a big league ball game that night, whether my team's in the race or not. The thing I tell myself, uh, I kind of kick myself in the butt and say, Hey buddy, right now there are hundreds of young men and some women now, which is a very good thing. They're getting out of their cars in a, maybe a crappy old parking lot in a minor league or a college ballpark or a high school ballpark somewhere. And they're doing what they're dreaming about doing. And I'm doing it at the big league level. So, you know, David, it's a really good question. But my simple answer is, if you don't consider every day you're in the major leagues a privilege, uh, you shouldn't be doing that. Because you and I hear players tell me this all the time. Some of them don't realize this until their in uh, their career is over and they take off that uniform for the last time every day you're in the big leagues is a privilege and if we're stuck in traffic on the team bus trying to get to city field in new york which happens a lot or chicago or atlanta you know what i'm on a major league team bus i'm not on a minor league team bus that just had to drive all night from Birmingham, Alabama to somewhere in Georgia or Florida or Louisiana. I'm in a, I'm doing a big league ball game that night. That is all the motivation I need. Yeah, it's more fun when your team's in the race and on their way to a World Series and four previous playoff appearances. You know, I've been with the Nationals 15 years now. Uh, so I think we've been to the playoffs six times. But uh, it's more fun. But I feel... In those early years, I got to the Nats in 06, the second year they were in D.C. We didn't have a winning record until 2012 when we made the playoffs. So those first six years were not a whole lot of fun. But um, I feel like I did some of my best work during those six years. Bob, you've had a great career, and you mentioned you've been with the Nationals for 15 years, and speaking as a fan, we hope you're there another 15 at least. But what would you say is... <laughs> that, that, you most- know what? That'll be ugly if that happens. <laughs> nah, nah, you'll, you'll have that voice that will keep reeling us Nats fans in, but what would you say is the most important lesson you've learned in your career? 
Wow, that's a really good question. I, I think, uh, you know, it goes along with lessons you've learned in life. Uh, when I was a young uh, back backup weekend sports anchor guy here in Tulsa, because I've been here for uh, 44 years now. I moved here in 1976 to do minor league baseball on the radio with the old Tulsa Oilers who were at that time the Cardinals AAA ball club. Gary Templeton was the shortstop, later traded for Ozzie Smith by Whitey Herzog. Kenny Boyer, one of my boyhood Cardinal heroes, was the manager. Um, so, you know, this thing goes back a long time. Um, I, I think the lesson that I've learned over the years is uh, really be nice to everybody. There, there are people who are easier to be nice to than others, if you know what I mean. You know, you, you, you've all run across those people in life and in your job and in your career. But, you know, I always heard, you know, be, be nice to everybody on the way up because uh, you might see them again on the way down. And, uh, you know, and I, I've had my share of people who, in my opinion, have done dishonest and wrong things to me uh, during my career. Uh, you know what? Uh, I, don't, I don't look at my success as revenge or, hey, I showed you, buddy. Uh, I just don't, I just try not to dwell on them or the things that they did or the things that I may or may not feel about them. Uh, I kind of toss those things aside. Uh, because of the amazing woman that I married, uh, my faith is very important to me, and she, she has more to do with that than anybody. And, and I think uh, what you do is you, uh, you, know, you kind of grab hold of the good things, uh, the, the positive things in your life, and as much as you can get them off your shoulder or off your back, you, know, you try to swat those other things away. It's like I said earlier. I'm sure there are people, and I hear from them from time to time in in the D.C. area, uh, you know, who who don't like what I do, uh, you know, and and that's fine. Everybody's got their own preference when it comes to announcers. I know for some people in the Maryland Baltimore area, I'll never sound like John Miller. Uh, I don't want to sound like John Miller. That's John's. That's his deal. You know, I'm Bob. This is what you get if you don't like it. Turn on the radio. Listen to Charlie and Dave. You know, whatever. Um, so I, I think you learn over a long career how to treat people, how you would like them to treat you. And the other thing is uh, being around professional athletes, uh, I try to always show them the respect that they deserve and be nice to them and never give them a reason. I always tell guys, hey, if you hear that I said something on the air that you don't like, don't call your wife or your girlfriend or your parents. I said, come to me. I'll tell you what I said. And, you know, and let's handle it like adults and let's handle it like men. Uh, I've never had a problem with a ball player who's ever come up to me and say, hey, man, you really killed me on the air the other night. Why'd you do that? You know, and I've had other discussions with guys who said, hey, I heard you said this or that or I just wanted you to know that, you know, hey, my ankle was barking or what, you know, my, my arm was hurt. I'm like, hey, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. That's going to go on the air tonight, uh, not to offer an excuse, but to, you know, smooth over the situation. So I think how you handle those things uh, goes over really well. But I'm going to tell you guys, I learned an unbelievable lesson from Ozzie Smith. And when I learned this from Ozzie, he wasn't in uniform. He was sitting next to me with a headset on. He had just retired in uh, at the end of the 1996 season. 
uh, on the Cardinals games in St. Louis, the home games on over-the-air TV, Ozzie became my broadcast partner for three years. I mean, we knew each other because I, I was with the Cardinals for a couple of years in the mid-80s, came back for his last two years in the mid-90s. And uh, so we knew each other. We had a great relationship, funny guy, wonderful to be around, the wizard, you know, fun guy. Opening night, 1997, the Cardinals are playing the Expos. Bush Stadium in St. Louis, opening night, everybody's excited. Ozzy's best friend, Willie McGee, hits a walk-off homer in the bottom of the ninth inning to beat the Expos. The guy trying to climb the right field wall to catch the ball, F.P. Santangelo. <laughs> the, the ball was too high. He couldn't get it. It was a home run. Cardinals win the game. The place goes crazy. You know, we're, you know, Ozzy's hooting and hollering. It's his first game on the air. I'm not going to stop him from doing that. And so, you know, we wrap it up. We say goodbye to the audience. We take off our headsets. And I look at him and I say, hey, how cool was that? And uh, I said, what do you think of this broadcasting thing? And Ozzy looked at me, he said, he said something I will never forget. He said, partner, the game sure looks easy from up here. <laughs> I think great. that's something announcers, writers, fans, ushers, <laughs> you know, uh, team presidents, general managers, some of whom played the game. I think, that, I think that's a lesson for all of us. What those guys are doing down there is really, really hard. A guy might be hitting 211, but he's better than 99.9% .9 of the people on the planet who would ever pick up a baseball bat. I think we need to recognize that. Players are going to make mistakes. They're going to make errors. They, they know that. A closer is going to have blown saves when they throw a fastball down the middle. It gets hit 450 feet. But we need to realize these guys are the best in the world at what they do. And as a broadcaster, I have to have respect for that. We're talking to the golden voice, one of the best in the business, Mr. Bob Carpenter. We'll uh, just ask you the last couple questions here because I want to be respectful of your time. And the one I want to ask you, are you big into baseball analytics or has that been kind of a pressure point as far as being talked about in broadcasting? Because I know a lot of times through Twitter and other various outlets, they're talking about guys improving their line drive rate, fly ball, yeah. ground ball percentage, pitchers improving their O swing or their CSW. Is that kind of something that's being talked about, being incorporated more during broadcasts? Yeah, well, I, it's a good question, uh, David. And I think it, it has to be incorporated because that, that's the way the game's heading. It doesn't mean I like all of it. Uh, and FP does a good job of talking about the human factor, you know, what's in here as well as what's up here for a player. Not always things you can measure with stats. So I find myself getting more into analytics. Um, being on TV, fortunately for me, uh, you know, and, and FP is a talkative analyst. Anybody who watches us knows, you know, he's going to talk a lot during a game. So if I come showing up with 80 different stats some night that I want to jam into the broadcast, there's not going to be any dead air. There's not going to be any crowd noise. There's going to be two guys you know, jabbering back and forth uh, the whole time. I don't really want that. So I'll incorporate some of that stuff. But being on TV, I'm probably not under the same pressure that maybe the radio guys are because, you know, they, they do their own research. I have a crew who gives us a lot of those stats. And, you know, we talk about it during the game and they show them to us. And 
every night, let's say we have a 7 o'clock game at 545, uh, we have a uh, production meeting. FP and I are in the booth with our headsets on. It's a time when nobody can bother us. We need to shut the door. Nobody gets in the booth. And we're hooked up with our guys in the truck and our ladies in the truck. They're showing us the stats and different analytical things that are going to be on the on the game uh, and during the telecast. So I think um, the answer is, oh, yeah, we're, go- we're going to embrace that those things. We're not going to go as crazy as, uh, you know, the actual analytics people are because that's what they do for a living. And we need to recognize they're trying to help our ball club win games. But at the same time, every time I see a ground ball that goes where the second baseman's been standing for 170 years and now he's not there, you know, it just looks bad. And we have to make sure that we balance that with the number of outs that are taken away by that second baseman may being being on the other side of, uh, you know, second base for a right-handed batter or in short right field for a left-handed batter because there there are hits that get taken away. I don't know what the balance is. I would think you're taking away more hits than you're giving up or else the shifts would have been gone by now. So, you know, all of those things get incorporated. And I think as a play-by-play guy, I just I have to pay attention. I have to be aware of certain things. I have to be armed with some of those numbers, but I'm never going to let analytical numbers and statistics get in the way of the beauty of me calling the game when the ball's in play, outfielders are running to the gaps, base runners are running all over the place. To me, that's that's the essence of play-by-play. You can talk about guys who tell stories and they're funny and they chat really well between pitches and all that. But to me, and maybe I'm old school at the age of 67 with 37 years in the big leagues, but to me, the essence of great play-by-play is what you say when that ball has been put in play until the end of that play. And to me, that's what makes a good play-by-play announcer. I love that. And then you definitely are the essence of that. And, you know, I, I'm big into analytics, but I, I enjoy hearing the purity of the stuff that you bring to the broadcast. And I can do all that other stuff on my yeah. own. I just like turning it on, listening to you and FP talk and just kind of digesting the game that way. So I, I think it's the way you laid it out is exactly how it should be. Hey, um, a two to one game or a one nothing game can be just as fun as 10 to nine or seven to five. So thanks for that. No, of course. And we'll get you out of here on this. So we like to do a little bit of a fun rapid fire with when we have our guests come on this show. So just okay. kind of fun questions, not too much thinking about it, just kind of, you know, what you feel like you'd like to answer for that one. Okay. All right, here we go. Number one, most memorable call of your career. Wow. Um, Mark McGuire's 61st home run um, to, tie, to tie Roger Maris. Okay. Why? Was Dimitri Young's nickname the Meat Hook? I think it's speak. I'm not sure because that came from the players, but I think it might have been a fun poke at his defensive abilities or lack thereof. <laughs> uh, Dimitri was a good hitter. I had Dimitri with the Cardinals in uh, in the mid '90s. He hit a big triple. Uh, my only the only time I ever got to do playoff games. I know this isn't rapid fire, but I digress. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Dimitri hit a big triple in game four against the Braves in the LCS in 1996. Jack Buck was sick. 
I got to work four games on the radio with Mike Shannon, and uh, that helped the Cardinals go up 3-1 to one in that series. Uh, Brian Jordan hit a big home run in that game. Dimitri had a big triple. He was a rookie with the Cardinals, uh, so I love the guy. But he once told me that when he was playing first base and there was a pop-up that was back over his head, as soon as he looked up, he, heard, he started hearing circus music in his head, <laughs> and he didn't know if he was going to catch that ball or not. So to me, that's probably where Meat Hook came from. <laughs> that is great. I, I thought it was because he like didn't he have his arm like this when he ran after a home run or something? Yeah, I think he did that. He he might have done the one thing, the one wing down thing or whatever too. Okay, I, I like your answer better, so I'm gonna go with that then. Uh, your favorite ballpark food? Dodger dogs. Did my first yes. big league game there in 1984. I never do a game at Dodger Stadium without having a Dodger dog. What's the difference between a Dodger dog and like a Nets dog? The Dodger dogs are grilled. They're a little burnt and a little charred on the outside. And to me, when I grill, that's what a hot dog is all about. Oh, wow. I have to go to Dodger Stadium just for that now. So off that one, where is the best ballpark to visit? It's a tie between Wrigley and Fenway. I can't – I've been to Wrigley more than I've been to Fenway. Uh, I can't pick one over the other. It's an absolute tie for first place. It's a step back in time – and it makes me wish I could have seen a game. I used to wish I could see a game in St. Louis back when Stan Musial was a rookie and all that. But uh, going to Wrigley and going to Fenway makes you feel like you're back in the early to mid-20th century. I respect both those answers. I've only seen Wrigley, and it was beautiful, so I, I can definitely understand that. Would you rather call a no-hitter or a playoff win? No-hitter. All right. Would you rather, okay, what would be your career if you weren't a play-by-play broadcaster? I probably would have been a baseball media relations director because uh, in my early years, my sister went to work for the Cardinals, Judy, who spent 52 years, by the way, Judy Berta. She worked for the Cardinals for 52 years. Uh, I was 14 years old when she got that job in 1967. That's when I really, really caught the baseball bug more than I already had growing up watching Stan. I got to see Stan Musial play. Uh, he, I was 10 years old when he retired. I got to see him play in person. But um, I was really interested in the statistical uh, media side of baseball. So I, I think if I hadn't have been an announcer, I probably would have been a front office guy doing something. That's awesome. Last three here. The event that you've never gotten to call that you wish you could call? World Series. Now, I should have thought of that when I wrote that question. Your uh, favorite TV show? Favorite what? TV show. Favorite TV show? Wow. Um, I guess I guess it's because I got to go there three times in the mid-'80s and host the Masters on CBS. When I was with USA Network, I, I know that's not like a sitcom or a series, but the Masters on television – to me, is the most pure sporting thing you'll ever see. And I got to host there three years in a row for USA Network, 86, 87, 88. I got to walk Augusta to see it on TV. I don't care if I ever watched anything else on television. I love that. It definitely counts from in my book. Your last one here, favorite national memory besides winning the World Series? Probably, um, 
Well, I, I could say when my ring arrived in the mail, that was pretty good. <laughs> you know, I, I think Are you working it now? I, I think I think watching calling Max Scherzer's twenty strikeout game, he already had two no hitters. And you know, we talked about the Zimmerman no hitter, but but the sheer joy and and Steven Strasburg's fourteen strikeout major league debut was way up there. That would be one A but Max's 20 strikeouts would be number one against his old team, the Tigers. And he had a chance for 21, except the last guy made contact. That's true. That's a great. You were at that Strasburg game, and I remember how electric that stadium was. I mean, everybody thought he was going to be the next big thing. He's had a great career, World Series MVP, but I'll never forget Yeah, when Steven's been healthy, he's been amazing. I mean, he's just a, he's a monster of a man. And I remember at one point during that game saying, he can't be this good. I mean, that was only seven innings, guys, with those 14 strikeouts. He gave up a couple of hits. He gave up a homer. uh, But the Nats won the game. But see, we hadn't been to the playoffs. That was 2010. That was the first time we ever had a playoff atmosphere at Nationals Park. That's true. I I remember the the people waving towels and every two-strike count, everybody was going nuts. I mean, it was. Yeah, it was, Rob Dibble was on the call with me. Uh, FP would come along the next year. Uh, so that was Dibble and myself with Debbie Taylor, and that was a thrilling night at the ballpark. For sure. Bob, we want to thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute privilege to be able to talk with you today. We love hearing you call games, and to be able to talk with you on here is just an absolute treat for us. Well, David, thanks for inviting me on. Eric really enjoyed it. And uh, I guess it wouldn't be complete without me seeing, uh, you know, saying to you guys, See you later. That's a mic drop. I love it. (laughs) Bob, you are the best. If you want to make sure you see more of Bob, follow him at scorebook underscore Bob on Twitter. Again, make sure you check him out during the Nationals broadcast. And Bob, if it's okay, if I could take another one of your catchphrases, so long for just a while. So long for just a while. Mm -hmm.